So, hi everyone and welcome to um, a new series that I'm doing, which is interviewing some of the best and most interesting historians across various different fields of expertise. So to kick off this new series, uh, I am here today with an author who has a vast array of books and topics from Romans to forgotten histories to American presidents underneath his belt. Nevertheless, he is perhaps best known for the highly rated book, The Sultans, the rise and fall of the Ottoman rulers and their world, a 600 year history. So with that in mind, I'd like to welcome populist historian, Jem Dujicu. How are you doing? Thank you very much. Hello, hello. <laughs> there we go. So thank that you That is for an coming. amazing intro. That, I, I know, I thought so I'd much for a, that. A good hype man I am. <laughs> <laughs> So um, essentially, so you have all of these publications, which we'll get on into um, in due course, but there seems to be, from what I can understand from your Twitter and the various things you've done, there's a whole devotion that you have to history. Where did this come from? So it, it's, I can remember when it was first kindled in me. I was mm. in junior school and you used to get ladybird books. And this was, I, I'm presuming it's called the ladybird book of history. And basically what happened on one page, there was a cool picture. On the other page, there was like two paragraphs of information summarizing a huge topic of whatever it may be. And I remember a picture of uh, the Crusades. And I thought that looked really exciting. And I remember a picture of, uh, of a tank in World War One, And so... I'm pretty sure today there will be all kinds of, uh, you know, why are you picking the yeah. battles and all the stuff that is this questionable, is this Eurocentric, whatever. But the point is, for little six-year-old Jem's brain, it's like, <laughs> oh my God, these stories aren't fairy stories. This all really happened. And so that's basically, I, I was hardwired in since then. I'm one of the few people who has a GCSE in medieval history. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, how did you then go from there to being a populist historian, because typically, I mean, like myself, I've kind of gone all eggs in one basket on a very niche. I mean, my dissertation that I just finished was on 12.13 to 12.30. So how did you kind of separate yourself from an extremely specific thing to then a vastly kind of a vast array of history? Well, my dissertation, I always remember going up to my lecturer and I wanted to do it on the Mongol expansion of the 13th century and its impact on the crusading movement. And oh, he wow. just smiled and went, are you just trying to get as much violence as possible into the subject? <laughs> went, yes, I am. Yeah. And he went, OK, it's valid. It, it's a valid story. And uh, yeah, so that's what I did. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's been on quite a journey, okay? Luke, you're a young guy, you know, I envy you, you have a full, beautiful head of hair, uh, you have no wrinkles yet, uh, you know, you have your whole life ahead of you. And so when I was your age, it, the social media hadn't invented yet. You know, I loved reading history books, and I got a proper job, and I still have a variation of a proper job today because it pays the bills. And... I would sit there at lunch times regaling people with bits of history and a, a number of them said why don't you write any of this stuff down as i'm well you know it's hard to get a, a, a book deal and i started doing a uh, a facebook page which still exists it's called history gems with a g and uh, I, I eventually got it to over ninety thousand subscribers which was like hey thanks very much people like this stuff and that kind of led there so if you like if I had been born in the 50s and was sort of sort of like starting to get these comments in, let's say, the 1970s, the, the technology just wasn't there to yeah. get it any further than that. 
But I just happened to get lucky that all this social media started building up ahead of steam. And what I found interesting is in the interceding sort of 10 years or so, um, I've kind of, I've not given up on the Facebook page, but it's changed a lot mm -hmm. to the point where I've just given up doing uh, American history at all on any subject whatsoever, because I might write something about, let's say, uh, colonists in the 1600s. And it's sort of like it'll be, I don't know, a fight between the local colonists and Native Americans. And you'll get people saying, oh, it's the same today. No, it isn't. Yeah. You know, you, you don't have the Inquisition nowadays. You don't <laughs> have, you know, people understand ethnic I issues and, you know, uh, white supremacy is bad. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, we don't use single shot muskets anymore. You know, th yeah. there are so many different things that are different today. Don't don't be that stupid and facile. But what I would get if I dared to uh, do anything after World War Two. I'd basically have both sides screaming at me. And I so, so if you like, I used to be out there pushing, hey, here's an interesting fact. And you mentioned the Forgotten Histories book. What the first Forgotten History book was all about was basically I compiled loads of the Facebook uh, articles and just sort of went and sort of like, again, properly edited them, you know, researched them further, grew them out a bit. And uh, and it turned into a book. Um, but I, I've done a second one of those called Slinkies and Snake Bombs. Same idea, just different name. And I may do a third one, but I, I, I've stopped writing those articles now because mm. it's, it's just not worth it. You'd either get the regulars talking to you on Facebook who are the same people week in, week out. Hi, thank you very much. Thank you for your support. But anytime it went viral, it went to angry places of the internet. And I, I just don't care. I don't know why you're screaming at me because these are facts. These aren't, yeah. these aren't opinions. These aren't up for debate. The Battle of Hastings happened in 1066. Sorry, we lost. You know, I don't know why you're getting so upset about it. Yeah, no, that's definitely something that I found as well with doing the podcast on YouTube because there's so much out there. It's almost if the, the I mean, almost the, the death of history is the fact that now anyone can comment on it and anyone can make videos on it. And there's, I mean, I don't know if you get this, but certainly me amongst friends, you know, people will say, we'll talk about certain things and, and, you know, they don't necessarily have the same kind of critical mindset that I guess you're taught in the degree to have about sources, about information. And some of the stuff that people end up spurting online and everything with some considerable, considerable views as well, it's a different, difficult thing to contend with. So it's like, it's tricky because on one hand, social media is such an asset to have now especially like building up a personal brand doing stuff like this um but there's so many challenges with it as well everyone's got an opinion and it's kind of it can be difficult to navigate that oh absolutely and it's interesting what you said i've been thinking about this and i've been trying to sort of get it into one of my podcasts about how let's face it when you leave university you've got a degree and you then have to claim to companies it's like oh yeah my degree in archaeology medieval history that'll definitely help me run a retail yeah. outlet it's like no no it won't <laughs> but one of the things you are taught in history is look at what this source material is mm. because there's no such thing as a completely unbiased source material so what's its bias what's it actually trying to say whose yeah. side is it picking and that is so important nowadays just because mm. i read something i like on Facebook doesn't make it true. And you get all this stuff, again, particularly sort of through the lens of America, uh, you know, it's, it's called Patriot Thunder Eagle News and everybody who loves Patriot Thun Thunder Eagle stuff goes, oh, it has to be true. It's like, 
and the, and the mainstream media is the lamestream media. It's like, no, they're the ones who pay actual journalists to go out and research this stuff. This other person is just a crazy person who's got an opinion and slapping it online. And just because it sounds cool doesn't make it true. Mm. And so we're, we're trained on that. And, and you're absolutely, look, I think also, to be fair, there's some excellent stuff online mm. um that like there's the great war channel which is which which week by week did world war one and has yeah. continued after uh, so basically it started in 2014 went to the end of 2018 but kept going it's still running saying look there were so many wars and so many conflicts and changes that happened after world war one like the russian revolution for example and they do their research and yeah. their their stuff is clearly unbiased and they work really really hard to do it mm -hmm. so there is there are good guys out there um but it isn't hard to quickly fall into the bad stuff yeah i guess that's a that can be a difficult tricky thing and i wonder what you think as a populist historian how do you navigate between i guess the academia the experts and then the general public, because you're in a kind of fine line between them where when you're writing, you've got to kind of, I mean, do you try to appease both? Do you try to include the more highbrow stuff, but also then the kind of the context that, you know, that then is accessible for general audiences, or do you just then focus on one or the other? It's an interesting question. I don't think any of my books are properly academic. I have yeah. had a few people turn around. Um, you know, another question uh, I, I get asked is, why do you pick these topics? Yeah. And it's like, well, I usually pick them because I don't think anybody else has done them. So my first published book is a, a deus vault of concise history of the crusades mm -hmm. and the reason why i wrote that is i did it at university i've always loved the crusades as a topic but there were no introductory books that covered all the crusades they tended right. to do the first four and that's it or they only did the middle east and it didn't happen anywhere else and mm -hmm. actually it's a lot more complicated than that so in regards to I, I, this is one of the things if you are a serious academic in crusading history i'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know but mm -hmm. there's 12 of them Everybody else, even if you're just a generalist medieval historian, you yeah. probably don't know much about the Northern Crusades or the mm. Sixth Crusade or whatever it may be. So there's something there for everybody. But I think the the problem with academia is everybody, it, it can be really, pardon my French, bitchy out there. Everybody's <laughs> okay. trying to get everybody yeah. else. I don't, I don't want you to be the best known person in Renaissance yeah. history. I'm going to, so they, they, you know, they're still human beings. They tear each other down. Mm. Now, obviously, you got to get the facts right. But what you end up doing whenever you read an academic history book is they are always hedging their bets. Yeah. It could be this. It could be that. We know. And, and it's like, OK, so nobody can get offended by it. But I can't read this because yeah. you page seven tells you A and page eight tells you A isn't right. So it's like I'm, <laughs> I'm bored now. So yeah. I do have to find a a through line mm. i never try and be biased so you mentioned the sultan's book again i wrote that because almost every book about the ottoman empire is written by europe and is talking about how exotic it is and it isn't that exotic it was a european power mm. or it's written by um it uh, well uh, or it's written well there's three types of people there's either the westerners sort of saying oh isn't this exotic oh the harem isn't nearly what you think it is um or you're it's written by people who used to be run by the ottoman empire and basically they're the nazis and it's like no that's it's more complicated than that. i'm so sorry it's offending your nationalistic sensibilities in the 21st century but 300 years ago 
you were complicit and made money out and were very popular in, in the Ottoman Empire. Sorry mm. that, that 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 doesn't play well today. Or the third type is by modern day Turkey, which wants to make out the Ottoman Empire is brilliant and wonderful and everybody else were cheating liars and scum. And it's like, I am the first person to write something that sort of like is trying to thread the needle on that one. Sort yeah. of saying, it's a, bit, it's a bit exotic. And they were bad to local populations, but it was this cultural entity in its own right that by contrast was actually very uh, open and uh, sort of agnostic to people. And I have had really nasty comments uh, about right. it from certain peoples uh, and i also for for a while they tried to uh, review bomb it on on amazon as oh. well so i think that tells you that i'm probably doing it right if i'm getting people so yeah. i would say to people if you want to read one book on the ottoman empire and you know nothing really about it read this yeah. then if you talk to a turk or a greek uh, or an Albanian or a Syrian, uh, they will give you very different views. And you go, oh, did Jem get it completely wrong? It's like, well, go back to the book and see why they might be angry or see why they haven't even been taught half this stuff. So yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. But I, yeah. yeah, that's the best answer I can give you on that. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And it's interesting you say about, uh, like towards the end there about the review volume and everything, because obviously you are kind of, I mean, in the public eye in a sense that, that you are, you know, there is going to be criticism and everything. And also, you know, as you say, academia itself can be at times very toxic. I mean, how do you personally cope with that? Because I I self-published a book uh, last year and I got uh, a negative review and it's all I could think about that day. Oh, and it was in my head and I could, not, <laughs> I could not stop. You ask anybody and they'll all say that the one-star reviews stick in their heads far more than the five-star yeah. reviews. So you are in good company there, Luke, and <laughs> I feel the same way. And occasionally I reach out to these people mm. um, and, and sort of talk. You can also tell when they their mind's made up. Mm. Uh, like I did one on uh, the British Empire and 100 Facts, and an Indian guy reviewed it and went, this is just riddled with, with errors. So I went back right. to him going, tell me what the errors are. There's a second edition coming out, never heard from him. What he means is I didn't learn this in school and therefore it's all wrong. And it's like, right. no, you were, you were taught some toxic, some, some toxic yeah. stuff. Now, actually the British empire and a hundred facts, I got reprinted by my publisher to India and I had to take a fact out because it was too uncomfortable for Indians. Yeah. And I replaced it with something else to do with India. That was a bit more fun in inverted commas. So you, you know, you, yeah, you might turn around and say, Jem, you're uh, compromising your artistic uh, integrity there. But <laughs> hey, I want to sell some books as exactly. well. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I want to, obviously we're talking about a lot of books. So I want to go back to kind of the beginning. Writing a book. I mean, I'm, I'm on the edge of about to start writing one for the next, I mean, I've booked myself for two years. I mean, how do you go about writing it? Do you, you know, what's your process? What's your kind of yeah i mean do you do you go on these retreats where you hide away for a month or or or, or do you kind of just go at it i mean yeah what's your process in, in writing books you you've watched love actually that, have, that doesn't yeah, happen that's anywhere that's the first thing that came to mind no 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 i think write screenwriters write those scenes in hoping that people will give them money for a retreat no yeah. almost everybody writes in a coffee shop i personally mm -hmm. write at home but anyway um this is something else I actually feel really passionate about because there's a whole cottage industry about paying me and I'll tell you how to write a book 
or yeah. show you the tricks of a blah, 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 blah. and it's like no absolutely not what i've discovered uh, my my wife uh, has written a number of screenplays and i've written a number of books and mm. i know a few other writers everybody does it differently there's no right or wrong way it's whatever works for you yeah. and so long as you're moving forwards with your manuscript you're doing a good job i think the biggest problem is people sort of like do two chapters and then give up mm. now i can give you I'll give you two different examples uh, with, with myself uh, to sort of answer your question. So um, we've mentioned, you, you said sort of like you've, you've done a book on the Romans and the president. So my publisher has this series called X, a historical topic X in a hundred facts. And I got to write four of them. So they were British Empire, Napoleonic Wars, Romans and American presidents. So pretty mm -hmm. diverse there. Yeah. And on each one of those, um, well, actually, the Napoleonic Wars, they came to me and went, can you do the Battle of Waterloo in 100 facts? And I went, not really, because by the time you get to fact 67, we're talk talking about belt buckles. You know, yeah, nobody's going to yeah. read that. However, it's a very, it's 25 years of fighting across the whole world. But I reckon I could give you a good overview, a good starting point about the Napoleonic Wars. Mm -hmm. And we could do that in 100 facts. So there was that little debate. And then it's like, OK, but we need it, Jim. We need it by, by June uh 2015 because that's the celebration of 200 years of the battle of waterloo ah, so even though it's old it's got a sell-by date go yeah. and, <laughs> so right <in. laughs> fortunately those books each one of those books is only about forty thousand words it's not a huge task and when you chop down the 100 facts where you start yeah. something working working out it's like well okay that's not that much per, per fact mm. so it's easy it's easy to chew chew through but then my most recent book literally just before this podcast mm. i have sent a sort of an amended manuscript to the publishers in america it's it's out next summer so i don't want to go too much into it now but mm. uh what happened was i had an idea last november and just it clearly it the the information had been sitting in my head uh, broadly speaking what it is is there are historical movies but are they actually history uh and so you know, it's a little bit of Hollywood history, but also a little bit of like, OK, let's talk about the real history depicted in this movie. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? Mm. Um, and clearly that's been in my mind for many, many years, because once it popped into my head, my brain just said, go. And in 11 days, I wrote 80,000 words. And I've wow. never done that in my entire life. And I but it was just like my brain was nagging me. Yeah. I would go to bed and then I'd wake up at five in the morning and go, right, you've, you've had enough sleep, Jem. Yeah. Crack on with the next chapter. <laughs> okay, brain. <laughs> now, obviously, the first the first uh, manu first version mm. was riddled with gra grammatical errors and things like <laughs> yeah. that. And also fever dreams. You know, my editor, <laughs> my, same editor on every single book I've done, sort of like turn around, Jem, what, what, what do you mean in this paragraph? And then I look at it and go, oh, yeah, okay, right, let's, let's rearrange that. Yeah. Um, so, you know... And I have heard people say, a famous, I can't remember their name, but a well-known writer of like novels said, you know how uh, you download the, the story into your head and then you sort of like regurgitate it onto the pages and mm. other writers went, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Oh, that, well, that's the way it works for me. And so everybody is different. I don't mm. want anybody to think what I've just said is right or what I've just said is wrong. That's just the way Jem writes a book. And if you do it a different way, all power to you. Like I say, the only thing I will stand by is get it done. Yeah. I do not understand. Like George R. R. Martin, we've been waiting more than 10 years for his next uh, Game of Thrones book. And he even turned around about four years ago and uh, it was meant to come out then. He hadn't finished it. And he went, I'm as disappointed as you. It's like, it's, mm. it's it's not a train that hasn't arrived. You're <laughs> writing it. You've had yeah. 10 years. Sit down and write it. Yeah. 
so 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 yeah i mean okay that is where i would slap somebody but um mm. apart from that you do you yeah but do i guess do you ever find yourself though because i mean having the i guess the the, the highs of it being able to write those eighty thousand words in 11 days do you ever get the opposite where it's three months and there's like barely ten thousand words do you ever get that kind of burnout or or are you just this machine that's able to keep going well, uh, simple answer is no. I, I've heard people talk about um, a writer's block and I, I've never experienced it myself. But then again, personally, my I, when I have a project, I do it. Yeah. But it's like, um, basically, when I wrote the first one, uh, the first version of this last November, and then I've been trying, trying to get it published, trying to get it to a publisher. During that time, I've tinkered around with the manuscript, but I can't say I've written anything else. Yeah. So, you know, right now, I don't have anything to write. And I, and I get the feeling it just recharges you. I think that the people who say you've got to write a thousand words every day, if that works for you, great. But if it does turn into writer's block, why are you doing it? Mm. Just just go away and do something else. I think yeah. generally, it, I mean, this has been shown psychologically. Uh, Luke, do you play video games? I do indeed. <laughs> there we go. Excellent. Well, so do I. Uh, so you might have had the situation where you've got to sort of like some kind of end, end of level challenge, end of level boss, whatever it may be and you just you're getting pasted and you get very frustrated and you throw the controller across the room and you swear that you're not going to do it again but then you have a drink and you 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 i don't know you go to bed or you mm. have a day's work you come back and your brain has been chewing it over in your head and when you set, sit down the next time to fight it you you get there and it's like well why didn't i do that yesterday and it's just because mm. your brain has been working on several different levels and i get the feeling it's the same thing with writing so if you're just trying to grind it out you're probably exhausting yourself but again if anybody's sitting going, well, that's not me, then I believe you. Uh, it, I think it really is. So in, I think writing is incredibly personal, and yet the industry's trying to make out that there is a standard way of doing it. And like I say, there are there, there are these companies which literally make money mm. saying, we'll tell you how to write a book. I think you're, I mean, Shakespeare never went on one of those courses. I think you're okay <laughs> without them. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, but okay, so you say there about the, obviously the industry and obviously one of the things that i've certainly witnessed with trying to get this book off the ground um that i'm about to write is that you you write to many different literary agents many different publishers 99 percent of them say no and i feel as though i mean would you give any advice to people about publishers literary agents how to kind of deal with them i mean i certainly heard from everyone for, from a large number of people saying whatever you do get a literary agent as best as you can you know how does i mean what's your opinion on that kind of all of that really <laughs> don't want to get cancelled here yeah <laughs> i would still love a literary agent mm. i'd still love one but i um i failed to get one but the yeah. thing is though if we're talking about non-fiction yeah look if, if anybody's listening to this going i'm going to write a history book and i'm going to make my millions that way never happens okay <laughs> there is no history book there is no non-fiction book that you can uh, retire on the uh, on the proceeds of yeah. okay and even when we come to things like novels i mean, basically if you think of almost every history book or non-fiction book it's quite often written by a professor who already has a job or mm. this, this is one of these weird sectors where it, it's the second job of people uh, and so okay yes there's jk rowling but yes there's lee childs okay yeah, there are the there are, but the point is you run out pretty quickly of people who 
spend their entire life writing books and making money from those books. Um, so, yeah, you have to be careful on that. I think that if you do really want to write a history book, you've got a real passion for this particular topic, reach out to publishers. And I have managed to get, uh, you know, my stuff published because they will listen to you. Because there are just there are loads of people who think they're the next J.K. Rowling. There aren't mm. loads of people who think they've got writing the next decline and fall of the Roman Empire. <laughs> so, you know, there's just it's a smaller marketplace. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to literary agents, I the thing I'll feel sorry for them is, is they don't know what's going to be the next hit. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they, they have to put time and effort into you. And until you get published and until that book starts making money, they only then do they get their 10 or 15 percent. So they really have to play a guessing game. Now, the bit I am going to be slightly controversial about is, you know, in the modern world, mm. there are too many of me. I'm a middle aged white guy. OK. Mm. And so therefore what people like now when it comes to the writers is the story as well yeah if if you've come from a working class background you're a person of color uh, maybe you know uh you're non-binary or something like that there's a story there that makes mm. you different to stephen king or jem deducci or whatever so yeah. suddenly you'll they will give you know and we need more representation i get that but the problem is i will i'll never forget this sitting down with my first uh, historical novel with this uh, with this um, literary agent and I, I sent over a copy of it and also gave gave them a copy of a couple of copies of my published works so to prove that I can finish a book and I'll never forget this feedback she gave me she went Jem you can write great okay I want to know that I'm producing a quality product you know knowing I can write is useful and she goes and this is a commercial idea brilliant again I, I don't want to sell yeah. two copies I want to sell 20,000 copies and, but she then said, but I'm just not in love with it enough. Like, well, what am I meant to do with that feedback? I'm yeah. not asking you to marry the book. Yeah. I'm asking you to promote it. If you're saying it's a sellable commodity, sell it. Mm. But the thing is, though, uh, and I know I'm rambling here, Luke, but a, no, a yeah. part of my day job, I go to uh, exhibitions. I used to work in a company that runs lots of exhibitions. I don't know if you've ever been to a trade show or a conference or exhibition where there's a huge hall with lots of stands of yeah, different yeah, yeah. sizes. Okay, so the second largest publishing show, trade show in the world is called the London Book Fair. And I've been to the London Book Fair four or five times. Mm. And I can you all you need to do is walk in there. And that's the problem, because you walk into something like, you know, several halls of Excel or Olympia or something like that. And every single stand is selling books for the next 12 months. Yeah. And there are hundreds of them. And no way are all of these going to be big hits. Mm. It's like when you go to some of those discount bookstores and you pick up a book, you know, it's like it's 50p or something and it's completely new and you read it and you go, that's a good book. Yeah. Why, why is it given away? I've never heard of it because there are thousands of yeah. books being released. And now on top of that, you've got things like Amazon, KDP. They're sort of like the sort of mm. uh, direct publishing thing that basically the way you can self-publish. Um, you know, so there's a whole load of self-published people out there. You yeah. know, books like The Martian and Fifty Shades of Grey. These all started as self-published books. Mm. So there's an even broader way of getting your book out to the market. And so, OK, I feel sorry for the literary agents because i understand they're kind of shooting in the dark and hoping that they hit something yeah. but at the same time i don't know what i need to do to prove if here is a stack literally a stack of books i've had published who are good enough that i keep being asked to publish stuff mm. and you know you also liked what i've written come on yeah. what do i need to do yeah. and even i've managed to fail with that over yeah. a 10-year period 
Yeah, no, definitely. Sorry, I really went off on one there, Luke. No, you're completely fine. And it's something that, you know, I've had a, a, a lot to think about as well, because I did, I went through to begin with the, uh, the Amazon Kindle Direct with my first book, because I was like, you know, I had tons of people telling me, um, okay, you won't be taken seriously as a historian until you're published, until you've got a book that you can kind of, that holds testament to you. So I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to write a book forget the whole process it doesn't really matter about making money and i'm going to self-publish it but it's interesting because although then it's like okay well you you know people were like okay you must be so proud you've published a book but i almost feel like i've cheated because um because of the fact it's self-published because i've skipped all the other steps and i've just written it and i've checked it over myself and I've gone, yeah, that looks good. And then I'm going to charge people money. So it's an interesting thing, although in a way it's almost made it a lot easier for people to become, become authors. And then that combined with obviously building personal brands like podcasts and whatever, you can kind of build an audience. I mean, do you think there's a stigma to self-publishing? Do you think it kind of, it, things like this Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing is, chain, is changing publishing? Uh, it, it, look, it's definitely changing publishing. Um, mm. Just the fact that you've got things like Audible now. I keep being asked, when are your books going to be on Audible, Jim? And it's like, oh, well, yeah. my publisher doesn't do that. And mm. it takes quite a lot of effort to, to read out a book and do the audio editing and all that kind of stuff. Although one of my, my first historical novel is currently being turned into a, an Audible version of the book. And, and so that'll be out um, probably by the autumn. Um, so... Look, I, I hear you on that. And and so look, let's talk about my first historical novel. So that's the one where the literary agent went, you know, mm. I'm not in love with it. It's called Silent Crossroads. And it's the story of a World War One Tommy. It's mm. a story of this guy called uh, Harry Woods. And he is the only British soldier to have fought in both world wars for both sides. Right. So he's, he's a fictional character. Yeah. But what it means is he starts off as a Tommy. He ends up flipping over to the German side in World War One. Uh, why? Because love. Uh, you know, he falls in love with a German nurse. And then in the interwar years, it allows me to show you the German experience from the point of view of an outsider there. And, you know, he, you know, like I say, he falls in love. He gets married. He has a kid. And so he watches his daughter grow up at the time of Hitler. And it's sort of like this adorable little girl is being taught anti-Semitic you know, hate stuff, hmm. you know, as part of the standard curriculum. So I'm, I'm showing you the stuff from a different perspective there. And, and and so it's a family drama, it's a war drama, but also it, you know, the reason why it's Silent Crossroads because he keeps making these choices in his life. And yeah. I think as you go along, you, you, you understand why he's making those choices, but towards the end of the book, he has to come to terms with all the choices he's made. I won't say any more than that. Um, I always thought it was a good idea. Literally everybody who's read it went, great idea. I ended up having to get it self-published. But here's the thing. I use the same editor that I use for my published books. So I know that the quality's there. Mm. And I even got a company called Greenwich Design. Shout out to Greenwich Design. Basically, somebody who worked in Greenwich Design liked the manuscript so much, went, we're going to design the front cover for free. Now, this is an wow. actual design house. Mm. So the quite frankly, apart from the ISBN number on the yeah. back of the book, what's the difference between that and a published work? Now, the thing about self-publishing is it is the Wild West. I could get drunk, write out three pages and, and stick it on KDP and KDP won't turn around and say, that's not good enough, Jem. Mm. Uh, so you have to be careful on the self-publishing. So, I mean, from what it sounds of things, look, you know, it's been properly edited. It's been done by somebody who knows the actual uh, um, area mm. of research as well. So it's quality. So you put all those things together 
that's a published work. It's it's out there. You, yeah. If you, as soon as you get one person who doesn't know you, so long as it's not your mum, if you know, <laughs> if there's one person out there who's read it who doesn't yeah. know you, you're 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 an author. What's the difference yeah. between that and it? I mean, again, there was no formal publishing process for Shakespeare. He just mm. wrote the stuff down. It eventually got stuck into some folios, and and you know we remember him 500 years later. So yeah, I think. But the reality is, what does a publishing house do for you that self-publishing doesn't is they got the marketing, yeah. they got the names and contacts and PR so they can get things out a bit. But again, mm -hmm. I'm sometimes seeing more money because the, the standard, just so everybody knows, the standard deal on publishing is generally you get 8%. Uh, of, so, you know, they get 92%, uh, <laughs> but you wrote the damn thing. Um so, the, so there are there have been some times where I've made more money from my self-published works yeah. than from my own published works. But and the uh, but the other thing is, once the book's out there, it's still out there. I'm still um, yeah. getting revenues from from my very my very first book, like you, was a self-published history book, um, and it tickles me that every now and then I see oh, I sold two more copies. Okay, that's lovely. <laughs> um, and I, I've, I've had a few people who've loved my other books who've gone to that one. I've had a couple of three-star reviews going gem gets better and it's like <laughs> why didn't you go back and change it and it's like but for me it's like a historical record this is yeah. where it all started and yeah today i would write it differently but okay fine that mm. that's that's my choice you know de dealer's choice and i as the writer i am the dealer no that's yeah no that's brilliant so i guess it's interesting that you say that your first book was kind of i guess historical fiction right um, no, no. So the very first book was a historic uh, history book, non-fiction oh, book. Um, but I just couldn't get it published. So, but it taught right. me a lot, and that's how I ended up getting published with my second book, the the Crusades book. Got you. Sorry, yeah. But then my first historical novel that came about I don't know five six years later. The, right. Yeah. Sorry. So that um, I find particularly interesting because I find that genre uh, quite interesting because I have um, a friend who absolutely loves it. But I almost feel like, is it almost misleading? Is there a responsibility that if you write historical fiction to maybe separate facts from the fiction, to make it clear when you're doing so? Um, because it can mislead audiences. And it kind of returning back to what we said at the beginning, you, you there is as well with so much out there, people can spur a lot of rubbish. So, okay, so I absolutely hear you on that. And I hate it when the central character is somebody famous. Right. It's like, you know, here's George Washington and he's off yeah. doing stuff. And it's like, you're putting words into a historical figure's mouth. So uh, I said, Harry Woods in this historical novel, he's fictional. Mm. And every single, I've, I've written four historical novels and my central characters and all of them are fictional. So therefore I can put them wherever I need to put yeah. them. But I make, I have a rule with myself. You know, if they meet anybody historical or if they're a part of a historical event, it has to be right. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that, that's what I've done in, you know, so when I describe the start of the Kaiserschlacht in World War One, which was the last big German offensive in 1918, I get it right down to the minute and the general tactics that they're using. Now, the men who die in that or get captured in that chapter are fictional, but I'm not misleading anybody in, in regards to that. So um, I absolutely hear what you're saying. And, it, you know, I guess this is one of the things that makes Sharp so popular and, and other things like that, uh, because 
they are fictional, but they get to bump up against, oh, look, there's the Duke of Wellington or <laughs> yeah. whatever it may be, uh, you know. So, uh, you know, the, the, the Last Kingdom with uh, the Anglo-Saxons, etc. So, um, yeah, I, I hear you on that. And there is lots of bad historical fiction mm. out there. And also there's historical fiction which starts repurposing these people to make them, um, you know... Uh, it, it makes them completely anachronistic. The thing, have you watched Peaky Blinders, for example? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, just a couple of things. You know, the, the fact that you got uh, Tommy Shelby, he's he he's basically fictional. and But the way he acts, he's like, he's, he's nice to women. He's great to minorities. Mm. Uh, you know, he's worried about his alcoholism. None of, <laughs> all of this is 21st century. What, 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 he's a yeah. working class guy from Birmingham. <laughs> that is not how a working class guy from Birmingham in 1920 would think. I'm sorry. Yeah. And that's the problem because mm. it's offensive to us today. But the other thing about the Peaky Blinders is they'd all been wiped out. They've been cleared out before World War One, not after World War One, And so that just tells you all of this is garbage. Yeah. So, but you, you really have to know your stuff. I ended up re write, sorry, reading a book about the Peaky Blinders, the real Peaky Blinders, clearly written by a historian who was sort of having <laughs> a hissy fit and quite right too. It's like, this is all as made up as Marvel movies. And mm. it's like, okay, fair enough. Cheers, mate. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, no, that's definitely, uh, I guess, something that can be very tricky with, with uh, history as a topic. But um, in any case, we have only one minute remaining. So, Oh, my God! I know, just quickly, um, two things. Firstly, um, is there any, any kind of socials or any podcast or any publication that you'd like to quickly promote, shout, give a shout out to that people can kind of direct themselves to if they want to know more about you? Uh, I'm going to say Condensed Histories is my podcast. It's where I take a piece of pop culture like a movie or TV show and say, hey, look, there's some real history behind this stuff. And I tear Peaky Blinders to pieces, for example. <laughs> I'm also at Jem Daduchu. That's J-E-M-D-U-D-U-C-U, at Jem Daduchu on Twitter if you want to say hi. Brilliant. And in one sentence, if you could give advice to someone who wants to be an aspiring author of history, what would it be? Don't give up. Lovely. Thank you ever so much for coming and um, thank you and uh, please watch uh, some of the other interviews coming out soon. They'll be weekly. Um, so thank you very much. And that's that.